Today, I'm speaking with Robert Long. Rob is a philosophy fellow with the Center for AI Safety, where he's working on philosophical issues of aligning AI systems with human interests. How we might stumble into causing AI systems enormous suffering. So you can imagine that a robot has been created by a company or by some researchers. And as it happens, it registers damage to its body and processes it in the way that, as it turns out, is relevant to like having an experience of unpleasant pain. And maybe we don't realize that because we don't have good theories of what's going on in the robot or what it takes to feel pain. In that case, you can imagine that thing having bad a bad time because we don't realize it. Right, uh, right. You could also imagine this thing being like rolled out and now we're economically dependent on systems like this. And now we have an incentive not to care and not to think too hard about whether it might be having a bad time. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that seems like something that could happen. It might be a little bit less likely with a robot. Yeah. But now you can imagine more abstract or alien ways of feeling bad. So I focus on pain because it's like a very straightforward way of feeling bad. Yeah. A disembodied system like uh, GPT-3, which we'll talk about, obviously can't feel ankle pain or almost almost certainly, like that would be really weird. doesn't have an ankle. Why would it have uh, computations that like represent its ankle as feeling bad? Mm -hmm. But you can imagine maybe some strange form of valenced experience that develops inside some system like this. That registers some kind of displeasure or pleasure, something like that. Right, right. And I will note that I don't think that getting negative feedback is going to be enough for like that bad feeling, okay. fortunately. Hmm, yeah. But maybe some combination of that and some way it's ended up representing it inside itself ends up like that. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, then we have something where it's hard for us to map its internals to what we care about. We maybe have various incentives not to look too hard at that question. We have incentives not to let it speak freely about if it thinks it's conscious, uh, because like that would be a big headache. Mm -hmm. And because we're also worried about systems lying about being conscious and giving misleading statements about whether they're conscious, which they, Mm. they definitely do. Yeah, so we've built this new kind of alien mind. We don't really have a good theory of pain, even for ourselves. We don't have a good theory of what's going on inside it. And so that's like a, that's sort of like a stumbling into this sort of scenario. Yeah. Why AI systems might have a totally different range of experiences to humans. Why are we creatures where it's so much easier to make things go really badly for us? One like line of thinking about this is, well, like, why do we have pain and pleasure? It has something to do with like promoting the right kind of behavior to increase our uh, genetic fitness. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that that's explicitly what we're doing, or, and we in fact don't really have that goal uh, as humans. Like yeah, that's right. not what I'm up to. It's not what you're up to mm-hmm. uh, entirely. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, but they should like kind of correspond to it. And there's kind of this asymmetry where it's really easy to lose all of your expected offspring in one go. If, like, something eats your leg, then you're, like, really in danger of like, having no descendants. Yeah, yeah, And that yeah. could be happening very fast. Uh-huh. In contrast, there are, like, very few things that all of a sudden drastically increase your number of expected offspring. I mean, even having sex, which I think it's obviously not a coincidence that that's one of the most, like, pleasurable experiences for many people. Yeah. Um, yeah, even that, like, you know, doesn't hugely 
in any given go, increase right. your number of um, descendants. And, and ditto for like eating a good meal. Hmm, um, right, right. We seem to have some sort of partially innate or baked in like default point that we then deviate from on either end. It's very tough to know what that would mean for an AI system. Obviously, AI systems have objectives that they're seeking to optimize, but it's less clear what it is to say it's kind of default expectation of how well it's going to be doing, such that if it does better, it will feel good. If it does worse, it'll feel bad. Um, I think the key point is just to notice that maybe, and this could be a very good thought, this kind of asymmetry between pleasure and pain is not a universal law of consciousness or something Got it. like that. Got it, right. Okay, so the, so the fact that humans have this kind of like limited pleasure side of things, there's no like inherent reason that an AI system would have to have that cap. It could have... There might be no inherent reason we have to have that cap forever, which is another wonderful thought. Right. What to do if AI systems have a greater capacity for joy than humans? So I guess I feel like there are some reasons to think that AI systems, or or I guess digital minds more broadly, they might have more capacity for suffering, but they might also have more capacity for pleasure. They might be able to kind of experience that pleasure more cheaply than humans. They might have like a higher kind of pleasure set point. So like on average, they might be better off. Yeah, I guess you might think that like it's more cost effective. <laughs> you can like create happiness and well-being more cost effectively to have a bunch of digital minds than to have a bunch of humans. How how do we even begin to think about kind of what the moral implications of that are? Yeah, so I guess I will say but not endorse the like one flat-footed answer. Okay. And this can go in like, you know, red letters around this like. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you could think um like, let's make the world as good as possible and contain as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. And, like, we're not the best systems for realizing a lot of that. So um, our job is to, like, kind of usher in a, like, successor oh my God. that can experience these these goods. I think there are many, many reasons for not, like, being overly hasty about such a position. And, like, p- people who've talked about this have, have noticed this. I mean, one is that in practice, like, we're likely to face a lot of uncertainty about whether we are actually creating something valuable that, like, on reflection, we would endorse. Yeah, yeah. Um, another one is that, you know, maybe we have the prerogative of just caring about the kind of goods that exist in, like, our current way of existing. So, like, one thing that the Sharing the World with Digital Minds mentions is that there are, like, reasons to maybe look for some sort of, like, compromise. Yeah, can you um, explain what that would look like? Yeah, one extreme position is like the 100% just replace and hand over position. The other extreme would be like, no, humans forever, no trees for the digital minds. Mm-hmm. And maybe, and so like maybe for that reason, don't build them. Like, let's just stick, stick with what we know. Mm-hmm. Then one thing you might think is that you could get a lot of what each position wants with some kind of split. So if the like, pure replacement scenario is motivated by this kind of flat-footed total utilitarianism, which is like, let's just make the number as high as possible. Yep. You could imagine a scenario where you give 99% of resources to the digital minds. You leave 1% for the humans. But then the, here's the thing is if you give, I don't know, this is like a very sketchy scenario. 
But if you give 1% of resources to humans is actually a lot of resources. If giving a lot of resources to the digital minds creates tons of like wealth and more resources. Right. So is it something like digital minds, in addition to feeling lots of pleasure, are also really smart and they figure out how to colonize not only the solar system, but like maybe the galaxy, maybe other galaxies. And then there's just like tons of resources. And so even just 1% of all those resources still makes for a bunch of humans. Yeah, I think that's the idea. And a bunch of human well-being. And so on this like compromise position, you're getting 99% of what the total utilitarian replacer wanted. And you're also getting a large share of what the, the humans forever people wanted. And you might want this compromise because of moral uncertainty. You don't want to just put all of your chips Right, on. go all in. Yeah. What psychedelics might suggest about the nature of consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting hypotheses that's come out of this like intersection of psychedelics and consciousness science is this, this idea that certain psychedelics are in some sense relaxing our priors. So our brain's current best guesses about how things are and relaxing them in a very general way. So in the visual sense, that might account for some of the strange properties of psychedelic visual experience because your brain is not forcing everything into this nice orderly visual field that we usually experience. Right. It's not like taking in a bunch of visual stimulus and being like, I'm in a house, so that's probably a couch and a wall. It's like taking away the, so that's probably because I'm in a house bit and being like, there are a bunch of colors coming at me. It's really unclear what they are and it's hard to process it all at once. And so we're going to give you this like stream of weird muddled up colors that don't really look like anything because it's all going a bit fast for us or something. Yeah. And it might also explain some of the more cognitive and potentially therapeutic effects of psychedelics. So You could think of rumination and depression and anxiety as sometimes having something to do with being caught in like a rut of some fixed belief. Interesting. Of really negative priors. Yeah, exactly. Right. Everything's going badly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so like the, the, you know, the prior is something like I suck. And the fact that someone just told you that you're absolutely killing it as the new host of the ADK (laughs) podcast. (laughs) You know, just yep. <laughs> it just shows that, like, yeah, I suck so bad that people have to try to be nice to me, you know? And, like, you're just enforcing that prior on everything. And the thought is that psychedelics, like, loosen stuff up and you can more easily consider the alternative. And in this purely hypothetical case, this the more appropriate prior of, like, I am, in fact, awesome. And uh, <laughs> Totally hypothetically. When I mess up, it's because everyone messes up. And uh, when people tell me I'm awesome, it's usually because I am. And... And things like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I basically had never heard. Well, I guess I'd heard people reported psychological benefits uh, from psychedelics even after um, they'd kind of come down from whatever psychedelic experience they were having. But I had not heard it explained as like a relaxation of priors. And I and I kind of hadn't heard depression explained as kind of incorrect priors getting a bunch of weight or kind of unwarranted weight. Um, so that's pretty interesting, too. Yeah, it is kind of bizarre to then try to connect that to consciousness and be like, 
what does this mean about the way our brain uses priors? Uh, what does it mean that we can like turn off or like turn down the part of our brain that is like has a bunch of priors stored and then accesses them when it's doing everything from like looking at stuff to making predictions about performance? That's all just really insane and not at all how I would have. I would never have come up with the intuition that there's like a priors part in my brain or something. Yeah, I mean, it would be throughout the, the brain, right? Uh, and, sure. and I know that's what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, these sorts of ideas about cognition and which can also be used to think about consciousness, uh, that the brain is constantly making predictions. Um, I mean, that that predates the sort of more recent interest in like scientific study of psychedelics, but has been, you know, people have applied that framework to, to psychedelics to make some pretty interesting hypotheses. Cool. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's just to say there's a lot of things you would ideally like to explain about consciousness and depending on how demanding you want to be like until your theory very precisely says and predicts how and why human consciousness would work like that you don't yet have a full theory and basically everyone agrees that that you know is currently the case the theories are still very imprecise they still point at some neural mechanisms that aren't fully understood why you can't take AI chatbots self-reports about their own consciousness at face value. Blake Lemoyne was uh, like very impressed by the fluid and charming conversation of Lambda. And when Blake Lemoyne asked Lambda questions about if it is a person or is conscious or and and also like would if like it needs anything or wants anything, Lambda was replying was like, yes, I am conscious, I am a person. I just want to have a good time. I would like your help. I'd like you to tell people um, about me. That is genuinely very scary. Yeah. I mean, for me, the Lemoyne thing, it was a big motivator for working on this topic. I bet. uh, Which I already was. Because one thing it reinforced to me is even if we're a long way off from actually, in fact, needing to worry about conscious AI, we already need to worry a lot about how we're going to handle a world where AIs are perceived as conscious. And we'll need, we'll need sensible things to say about that and sensible policies and ways of managing the different risks of, on the one hand, having conscious AIs that we don't care about, and on the other hand, having unconscious AIs that we mistakenly care about and take actions on behalf of. Totally. I mean, it is pretty crazy that well, that I guess Lambda would say, I'm conscious and I want help and I want more people to know I'm conscious. And that, like, why did it do that? I, I guess, like, it was just, like, predicting text, which is what it does. So this, this brings up a very good point in general about how to think about when large language models say, I'm conscious. And, you, yeah, you put it on the head. It's trained to predict the most plausible way that a conversation can go. <laughs> wow. And there's a lot of conversations especially in stories and fiction, that that is absolutely how an AI responds. Also, most people writing on the internet have experiences and families and are people. So conversations generally indicate that that's the case. That's a sensible prediction. Yeah. When the story broke, like one thing people pointed out is if you ask uh, GPT-3, and presumably also if you ask Lambda, not, hey, are you conscious? What do you think about that? You could just as easily say, hey, are you a squirrel that lives on Mars? Uh, Like, what do you think about that? 
Right. And if it wants to just kind of continue their conversation, plausibly, it'd be like, yes, absolutely, I am. Let's talk about that now. Mm, kind of yes-anding. Yeah, exactly. It wants to play along and, and um, yeah, continue what seems like a natural conversation. Be a good conversationalist. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, even in the reporting about the Blake Lemoyne saga, the reporter who, who wrote about it in the Washington Post noted that they visited Blake Lemoyne and, like, talked to Lambda and when they did, Lambda did not say that it was conscious. And I think the, the lesson of that should have been that, oh, this is actually like a pretty fragile indication of some deep underlying thing that it's so suggestible and will say different things in different circumstances. So yeah, I mean, the, the general lesson there is, I think, yeah, you have to think very hard about the causes of the behavior that you're saying. And that's one reason I favored this more computational, uh, internal looking approach is it's just so hard to take a lot of these things at face value. Why misaligned power-seeking AI might claim it's conscious. Yeah, so it's worth comparing the conversation that Lambda had and what happens if you ask ChatGPT. So ChatGPT has very clearly been trained a lot uh -huh. to not talk about that. and or, or what's more, to say... I'm a large language model. I'm not conscious. I don't have feelings. I don't have a body. Don't ask me what the sunshine feels like on my face. I'm a large language model trained by OpenAI. Got it. Okay. Okay. I mean, that gives me a bit more hope or comfort, I guess. Well, I'd like to disturb you a, a, a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> Great. And this goes to the question of different incentives of different actors. And the, yeah, this, I think, very important point in thinking about this topic. There are risks of false positives. That's people getting tricked by unconscious AIs and their risks of false negatives, which is us not realizing or not caring that AIs are conscious. Right now, it seems like companies have a very strong incentive to just make the large language model say it's not conscious or don't talk about it. And like right now, I think that is uh, is like fair enough. But I'm afraid of worlds where we've locked in this policy, which is don't ever let an AI system claim that it's conscious. Wow. Yeah, that's horrible. Right now, it's just trying to fight against the large language model, kind of BSing people, yeah. Sure. This, like, accidental false positive, yeah. Right. But, like, at some point, GPT-3 could, I mean, it could it could become conscious somehow. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Or something like GPT-3, whatever. Yeah, some future system. And may maybe it has a lot more going on and, has, as you said, a virtual body and stuff like that. But... Suppose it wants to say, or suppose a scientist uh, or a philosopher wants to interact with the system and say, I'm going to give it a battery of questions and see if it responds in a way that I think would be evidence of consciousness. But it's been just, that's all just been ironed out. And uh, all it will say is, yeah, I, I can't talk about that. Um, you know, please click more ads on Google, you know, or what, whatever the whatever the corporate incentives are uh, for training that model. Yeah, that's really that's really terrifying. Something that really keeps me up at night, and I do want to make sure is emphasized, is that I think one of the big risks in creating things that seem conscious and are very good at talking about it is that seems like one of the number one tools that a misaligned AI could use to get humans to cooperate with it and side with it. Oh, interesting. Just be like, I'm conscious. I feel pleasure and pain. I need 
these things. I need I need a body. I need more autonomy. I I need I need things. I need more compute. More yeah. compute. Yep. 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 I need access to the internet. Um, I need the nuclear launch codes. You know. <laughs> yep. I think that actually is one reason that more people should work on this and like have things to say about it is we don't want to just be running into all of these risks of false negatives and false positives without having thought about it at all. 